there's only one snack that can make me feel like I'm having the true movie theater experience, and that's popcorn. When my mom and I hang in for a girl's night, we have to get our fix, and that's where Kelly's Killer Popcorn comes in. They're a small batch gourmet popcorn company, and believe me, one bite and you'll be hooked. Made in Austin, Texas, this family-owned business has tons of flavors. My mom loves their salted agave caramel, while I have a hard time picking between black pepper or dill pickle. Hmm, maybe I'll just mix the bags together. Oh, and when my dad and brother crash our girls' night, you know that spicy nacho popcorn is coming out. Every flavor is popped in 100% real butter and is whole grain and gluten-free. Which flavor will you be choosing? Head on over to kellyskillerpopcorn.com to indulge yourself in some scary good gourmet popcorn. And make sure to tag them on Instagram at kellyskillerpopcorn so that they can see what movie you're pairing with their flavors. That's kellyskillerpopcorn.com for American-made, small-batch, delicious popcorn. I might be vegetarian, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good spice rub. My favorite place to get them is Smoked Bros, a veteran-owned and operated business that sells premium handcrafted dry rubs, spice blends, and seasonings. Guys, you can even put it on your popcorn. My favorites are Honey Badger, because he doesn't give a bleep, and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping, because mm, 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 some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out smokedbros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. On the last episode of the Video Archives podcast, Roger and Quentin shed their stockings to solve the mystery of coma. There's a dead guy downstairs, and she's a fucking doctor saying he did it! Saw themselves in Mikey and Nikki. We're Dude, watching well, this movie together go, oh my God, am I Nikki? Yeah, oh my God, am I Mikey? <laughs> and took delight in Piranha. And there are just people crying everywhere. Children half eaten everywhere. And now we bring you the after show. Your all access pass to exclusive content, answers to your burning questions, and even more film discussion. I'm your summer camp counselor, Gala Avery. As I'm sure you can tell, VHS is the medium of choice here at Video Archives. Sure, we have Laserdisc. We have Betamax. We may even have Atari video games. But VHS is king. Quentin and Roger sat down to talk about how VHS tapes capture the quality of film better than a Blu-ray ever could. VHS, I think an argument can be made that this is the best archival uh, format for a movie, the best long-term way to, to hold on to a movie. The only problem is that there's no VCRs being made anymore. Well, I, you know, I, I, okay. In the case of Mikey and Nikki, that's the movie I've been talking we're about. Talking yeah. about. Okay. In the case of Mikey and Nikki, when Warner home video transferred it, they took a 35 millimeter film print. Now you could even see the, the real marks, the, yeah. the real change marks yeah. on the print. Sure. So all these videos, when you watch, when you look at the uh, uh, MCA uh, uh, video of uh, uh, Carrie, or that, you know, that's a film print of Carrie. And yeah. it's, and see, as Tim Lucas would describe, the beauty of emulsion. Yeah. Is just there. You see, you can you can feel the swirling chemicals. Yeah. All right. You know, in, in the image. And the oranges, they just, the hold it, it's, well, it it captures the quality of uh um you know of the actual film print the film print is not uh, uh is not divorced from it it's not just an element it actually is part of what you're watching and then with the idea of transferring things to digital it's to 
bypass the print as much as possible and create this pristine version that could never be duplicated in a theater. From quote unquote, the best elements, which are sometimes mm-hmm. interpositives or even original, you know, cut negatives mm-hmm. or, I mean, likely mm-hmm. internegatives, but. And I've even talked about like uh, releasing uh, some like library titles from Columbia and I've talked to their people and they're all really cool. But I said, look, if I do it, I want to do it from the film prints. I don't want to do it the way you just, you know, take an interpositive and uh, this digital negative and all this, and then everything comes out looking like, no, I want to to have that that glory of emulsion and, and the, uh, uh, the glory of grain. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, look, we can absolutely do that. But that is a bold, bold choice to do in today's world and in today's collector DVD market. We can do that. And some people will like it. But it's a bold choice that a lot of people just aren't going to understand. Did you guys know that VHS tapes were made directly from film prints? You learn something new every day. I think most of you know this, but if you're somehow new here, Roger is my dad. Working with my dad is one of the best things that I could ever ask for. And one of the many perks is being able to talk to him frankly about any topic. Roger took the time to sit down with me in the studio for an ultra-personal discussion all about video archives. Today, I bring you part one of the interview, where Roger talks about video outtakes, the people that taught him how to read a film, and his friendship with Scott McGill. Before video archives, take me back to video outtakes. Oh, uh, okay. All the way back. So, um, okay, you have to go back into the, like, the 1970s. Okay, how old were you, you think? Um, okay, so, God, let's see, if I do the math, I started working at video outtakes in 1979 i think it must have been so you're like 13 or 14. at least 1979 it could have been 1978 um that i started working there it actually could have even been a little sooner but i something tells me it was like right around then i can remember um going because when i was first going to high school in uh, manhattan beach i went to the school maricosta and i had to take the bus from manhattan beach to um redondo beach and, you know, it's a single line bus. You just go down Pacific Coast Highway. But I remember having to wait at the bus stop as a freshman. And I never would have done that otherwise, other than, you know, having to go, uh, you know. To work. To, to video outtakes. I never would have, you know, gone in that direction. I guess I guess I could have gone in that direction to go to Fun Factory, which was the video arcade at the Redondo Beach Pier. Okay, so you were about 14 then when you started working yeah, at Yeah, so outtakes. I'm like 14, 13 or 14, and before then you count back a few years to uh, 12, 13, my friend Scott McGill, his father, Dean McGill, he was super into video. He, uh, long before anybody, he was, you know, we had access basically to beta one decks. He had an advent video projection system that had a separate screen from the video projector. You know, they had all sorts of things at their house. They had a pinball machine. They had, you know, a pretty cool house to be a in. Soda dispenser, like bar with like ice cream fixings in it and stuff like that, and like big ice cream tubs, like in the like at a like at a place like in this bar that they had in this movie room, and they had all this access to early Sony Beta One equipment, which was like you know Beta One cameras and Beta One decks, and so very very early on, even before the video store. I had already by then been making movies in Super 8 and Regular 8, Regular 8, which is a earlier 8mm version. Super 8 uses a larger, by moving, by having a different sprocket um, 
uh, distribution, they're able to make the image bigger on the little eight millimeter thing. And so I'd been working even in regular eight, actually regular eight for anybody who's wondering is actually 16 millimeter film and you uh, shoot it and you actually shoot one half of it. And then you, when you're done with that half, you had to flip the film, you know, in a dark room or in a bag and then you'd film the other half and then you'd send it to the lab and they would cut the film vertically in half to create eight millimeter film. And that was actually how wow. it was physically done wow. back then. And so my earliest, earliest movies were done like that. And then Super 8 came along, which was like a cartridge of film that you could just pop into a camera. And that just made everything easier when you're, you know, 12, 13 <laughs> and even even younger than that, because I was making I started making movies on regular eight animations, actually, when I was in grade school, when I went to Grandview, which was in, um, so this was 77, 78 mm -hmm. is when I first started getting into regular eight. That, that must've been about when it was. And then rapidly after that, um, you know, beta, beta one, and then eventually beta two and, and so on. And then it was kind of a very quick explosion out of, um, you know, the, the early history of home video kind of begins, um, and, and Quentin is probably better to tell the hist the early history of home video. He actually probably knows it a little better, but magnetic home video was started uh, by this guy, Andre Frey, who um, went and licensed like 75 movies from, I think it was Fox. And then he, using that licensed uh, product, he did the very first home video releases, which you would buy. And so that was almost like the birth of the industry. And after that, it kind of took off. And so video, um, video outtakes, you know, Scott's father basically opened up that store. Yeah. So Dean McGill was really into video. And so he said, Hey, I'm going to open up a video store, basically share my love of video with everyone else in the neighborhood. Yeah. You know, um, it didn't end well between us because there was a divorce in their family and, you know, I, it just didn't end well between Dean and I. But the fact of the matter is, like, he was really influential on me um, in a very positive way, starting that store. And, and Lance was his partner in that store. So that was how I met Lance, who was the um, owner of Video Archives. Um, he also opened up Video Outtakes with Dean. And they kind of merged all of their privately owned tapes because they were both at that point collecting tapes. They merged their tapes together and they, you know, uh, bought an inventory and created that that first store, you know, in the late 1970s. So how and, did but, you... but Dean, I, I, I wanted to mention that Dean, like not only introduced you know me to basically videotapes. So when I'd go over to my friend Scott's house we would be basically working with that. We, he had 16 millimeter projectors that he would rent 16 millimeter prints. And so we would watch movies on film, you know, at their house, he had early, early video games, uh, the Fairchild uh, channel F video uh, system, which was like an early, early, early video game system, like blocks on a screen where you had to tape overlays onto your TV screen to have, uh, to know where the fields were. Um, and so he had all this like early, early, early stuff and gadgets and everything. He worked for the phone company. So he was doing all sorts of weird phone company <laughs> stuff. <laughs> like he did all sorts of strange telephone things. And I mean, their house was like a playland of early seventies technology. So did you get hired to video outtakes because of your friendship with Scott? Yeah. I mean, basically it was a family store. And in those days, like he was like 
I'm opening up a store. And so he started the store. And actually, shortly before the store, he would also videotape weddings. And so Scott and I were recruited to being his crew. And so he would go and shoot a wedding with his video gear. His In those days, it was such a new thing that that was uh, the application people were uh, doing. And so he would go out and videotape weddings, and we would go with him and, and you know, be his crew. Now, how long did you work at Video Outtakes before Lance did the, as I think Quentin put it, the hostile takeover and <laughs> created Video Archives? I mean, it, it must have been two or three years of um and Quentin there. Quentin didn't work at video outtakes. No, he was a customer there. Okay. He was um a uh every now and then a customer would come in and they would be like a special customer. But Quentin was definitely, you know, somebody who would come in and um I don't know, there's there's customers who just want to come, they want to get their tapes and they want to go. And then there's people who come in and they want to talk and they want to talk cinema. And they, you, you realize very quickly they're there for a, for a different reason. But you find your tribe and you find your people. And once you find that, it's really hard to let go of that. When you find like, I mean, with the internet now, it's so easy to stumble across people that share your interests, that love movies, that love cinema. Even if you like some really niche kind of movie, you can find people that like it. But mm -hmm. back in the late 70s, I imagine it was really hard and that these video stores were probably like beacons of hope well, to young people out there. Yeah, they were. Um, maybe things are too easy now, actually, to find to find those niches. Because in those days, like you would feel a little bit like an outsider and you would gravitate, you would seek out and find the, um, you know, that thing that, uh, that you loved that was out there. You know, if, I don't know if you're really into dentistry and teeth and all of that, you're going to like <laughs> be hanging out. <laughs> with all the dentists. With all the dentists and everything. And if you're into movies, like when I worked on this project, Lords of Dogtown which is a skateboarding surfing movie. It's all about kind of the time when urethane wheels kind of mm -hmm. emerged on the scene. And my entry into that film is like, um, as a writer was, I've lived this because the surf shop is no different than a video store. We were, we were not like young grommet surfers. We, although we had those at the store, <laughs> we were young, like people who love movies and, you know, young filmmakers, budding filmmakers, and so we would, uh, you know, gravitate just the way those kids did. And we were undergoing a little bit of a video revolution at that time, sort of an, one might even say the early stages of an information age revolution. And so it's not too different than the kind of advent of urethane wheels, kind of suddenly making that shop uh, a place to hang out for young kids. And so that you go there after school just to hang out. And suddenly you're meeting the other kids and you're meeting the, the various adults that are fostering that um, kind of stuff. Like, cause like Lance as a, um, you know, as an owner of a store, he became really like important in our lives. Uh, and, and Dean, of course, being the father of my friend growing up, you know, was uh, also like super important. The, what Lance did by having a store was basically creating a clubhouse, an environment for like-minded people to, you know, to, to come to. And that store was like that. 
Okay, so tell me a little bit more about Lance, because Lance Lawson has become a character in both you and Quentin's stories and scripts moving forward. Yeah. I mean, Mr. Lawson in Rules of Attraction yeah. is based on Lance Lawson. And kind also, of. <laughs> well, kind, not, not, <laughs> the character is not Lance Lawson, but the name is taken. And also, I think uh, there's a character Lance Lawson in The Hateful Eight. I think yeah, I think at one point Quentin and I were like just because of our love of Lance, you know, he um just because of everything he did for us, he would you know Quentin was talking about how Lance would take him to, you know, various film festivals. I mean, he actually and did concerts, the, the yeah. same for, concerts. That's so actually what he was talking about in particular. I didn't even know that that he that Lance had like taken Quentin and some of the other people to concerts. I wasn't really into music, which is probably, or that music, which is probably why Lance never did. The musical taste probably more coincided. Lance would always like invite us to various festivals, Filmex. He would buy me tickets. He's like, oh, Roger, I brought you some tickets. He bought me like, you know, tickets to like 20 films one year at, uh, at Filmex. So he was really a mentor for you. He was a complete mentor. He was an yeah. absolute mentor. And though, and, and, um, and he also taught me kind of how to be a little bit more critical over over movies like he wasn't always enamored and in love with movies yeah. like for instance stardust memories came out the woody allen movie and i loved it like i saw it and i was like oh my god i loved it it's so great and i went and i i saw lance that you know monday or whatever morning or shortly afterwards and he of course also saw it on opening weekend and I said, oh, I just, what did you think? He's like, well, I'd rather watch the original, you know, Fellini's eight and a half. You know, get, and he was like really tough on, uh, on. Um, yeah, it sounds like he taught you kind of how to read a film. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, he did. I, there, I also had one really, really good um, teacher in college who, um, who I almost credit like a good I don't know, at least 50% of my ability to read a film the way a person reads a book, you know, to analyze a film and kind of look at it thematically and to try to understand it beyond just the surface. And, you know, this teacher, um, Al Jacobs, at, uh, when I went to the Menlo College in Northern California, he was really good about that. And the movie that like kind of, it, it actually blew my mind was his analysis of Repo Man. He did an analysis of Repo Man that was... Um, it actually made me realize how brilliant Alex Cox was and what Alex Cox had been up to and what he was doing um, and the levels at which he was working on. Really, really simple things like, um, well, I mean, I'm not going to go into an analysis of Repo Man. Actually, I'm going to put that on my list of movies that <laughs> Quentin and I should watch because Repo Man is one of my favorite movies as a result of that. It's a great, great movie to be able to pick apart and analyze because it's structured beautifully. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's talk about Coma, because there's a lot to unpack here. I hope you all had a chance to watch it, because I put my investigator cap on and found myself with a lot more questions than answers. 
Coma is based on the novel by Robin Cook. Roger and Quentin discussed Crichton's career, the questions they had about the novel, and the logic within Crichton's other films. In the case of Runaway, he actually presents one of the better futuristic societies and it's the, the kind of futuristic society where it's like it's like the day after tomorrow so yeah. it's, it's it's a it's a recognizable futurist society <coughs> yeah I, I can't tell you what runaway is about but i remember the bullets that go around corners yeah, yeah the, the bullets See, that's, that's like the gun but, and uh... <laughs> but all that but even you know it's it's a, also a society where robots are, are are all part of what's going on and it's in part of everybody's lives and you know and they don't look like movie creations they actually look like the actual kind of real robots they would have and he does a, a great job of selling this whole futuristic society that has now learned to rely on robots to do manual work that he sells that works out he sells the idea that there would even be a a, 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 a division of the police force just assigned to dealing with robots yeah all right that you buy and we get tom the return of tom Selleck yes. in Crichton. yes exactly but none of the A to B plot points work at all. All right. How do they find the master evil mastermind, Gene Simmons, who's the bad guy in the movie? Because he goes to the victim's house and looks in their video camera doorbell. And that's how they're able to find out who the killer is. That's what they do today, I think. <laughs> that's, oh, oh, how did James Bond find out that <laughs> Rami Malik is the bad guy? Well, because he came to the victim's he house. ring doorbell. And pretended to be a UPS guy. <laughs> now, what do you think about Crichton? Uh, this is his, I mean, it's not, he'd done TV stuff, but his second film, right? Um, no, no, no. He'd done Westward before. That's this. right. West, well, no, he'd done Westward World. He'd done the TV movie Pursuit. Then he had, uh, Westward was his first theatrical feature, and I believe Coma. And then Coma came after that, yeah, a, yeah. A, a number of years afterwards. Yeah. He, and so, I guess the question is, I had always, like, suspected Robin Cook was, was a pseudonym for Michael Crichton. It's no. not. No. They are just incredibly similar no in it, style it, it was i mean in in who they they were both uh doctors uh they were both yeah. uh no uh, robin cook getting writing. michael crichton to actually adapt his it was just a fortuitous just an absolute fortuitous yeah. stroke of luck it's because I, I even thought like when we first started this i had forgotten about robin cook mm -hmm. at first mm -hmm. and then i thought oh this is Michael Crichton adapting his book when you, when you were first talking about it. Yeah. And then I was like, wait a minute. He, I don't think he wrote coma. No. And then I looked it up and it's like, no, he didn't. No, as a matter <laughs> of fact, it so feels like everything about it feels like Michael Crichton. After, after seeing coma, I'm actually kind of curious to actually see the, uh, Robin Cook's next big book was adapted into a movie. And that was the film Sphinx. Oh yeah. That's with, right. With, uh, that Franklin uh, J. Schaefer, uh, directed. Sh Schaffner. Sh Schaffner directed yeah. with, uh, uh, Leslie Ann Down and Frank Langella. Yeah. And that was like Langella's follow-up to, to Dracula. Uh, to Dracula. Yeah. And I never heard that it was any good, but I'd really kind of like to see that now, actually. Yeah. Uh, Cause it kind of literally came and went. Now, when it comes to coma, I couldn't help but wonder about how different the book was from the movie especially because of my disagreement with Quentin over the much-disputed fridge scene. She didn't have to trap him in. She could have just got... It, it, there's, there's nothing that doesn't well, make sense that she would not tell somebody at the hospital what, what fucking happened. If, if that had happened, what would have happened is she would have. they would have had the scene where she goes and she talks to everybody and she's like, he's downstairs, he's downstairs. And then we would have had to have the scene where they go into that cold storage room and they see the big mess and it's been cleaned, not the mess cleaned up, but or maybe the, it has been cleaned up. Maybe nothing has changed. It's been cleaned up. 
yeah. you know, whatever's happened. We would have had to have gone through all of that machination of her like, you yeah, know, no, that, but it was real. It was real. He was here. Well, that would have and, been convincing. <laughs> all right. Rather than she just goes home. <laughs> well, she goes home. Moving it along. He's moving it along. Well, not at the expense of complete reality. During the main episode, I disagree with Quentin's opinion on the chase sequence. I admit I was a little over the top with my body estimate, but not by much. There are at least seven bodies hanging in each row. Dr. Wheeler pushes two rows on him, meaning there would be at least 14 bodies. The average American weighs around 184 pounds. That means that 2,576 pounds of dead weight were thrust upon him. You guys, that's more than a ton. That's definitely enough to crush a guy. But regardless of how many bodies there actually were, I have to admit, I was wrong about the chase sequence. I turned to the original source material, Robin Cook's coma, to help me inform my changing opinion. And guys, this sequence doesn't even exist in the book. The man chasing Dr. Wheeler is named Angelo D'Ambrosio, not Vince. Also, there's a lot more of him in the book. In fact, he's a huge complex character. There's an entire subway chase sequence where Dr. Wheeler runs through a tunnel to escape him while the train comes at her. And the second time they meet, it's a brutal attack in her apartment where he negotiates with her and threatens to hurt her little brother, James. And lastly, he's ordered to dispose of her and make it look like a rape and murder. And they're very specific about it having to be a rape. So yes, Quentin was right. They could have done better. In fact, they should have done better because there is a lot of great stuff in the book. Now, while I was doing some research to back up my thoughts on Coma's chase sequence, Quentin was also doing his own research as well. Here's Quentin to fill us both in. Okay, so as this uh, argument about the assassin sequence with the dead bodies continues to uh, play out between Gala and myself, uh, I did some research looking at uh, some old vintage reviews of uh, the time, and it turns out that I came up with two different reviews from two of our sources that we use a lot here, Movie Tone News out of the Seattle Film Society and Films in Review, that both deal with that, uh, that sequence in their contemporary reviews of Coma. So I'm going to read first the Films in Review review. It's by a fellow named Hugh James. He has huge aims. (laughs) So he's talking about the movie and tells the storyline and everything and describing the thriller. And then he says, one particularly gruesome scene occurs when Bougeot, escaping from a killer stalking her, takes refuge in the morgue and uses the corpses in a scene worthy of Hitchcock. Wow. Wow. My man Hugh James out there. (laughs) So Hugh James is definitely on Team Gala when it comes to the assassin. Wherever you are, Hugh James. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. This is uh, Movie Tone News, uh, double issue 58 and 59 from the year 1978. And it's a fellow by the name of Robert C. Cumbo. Combo. <laughs> wait, so wait, wait, wait. Are these real wait, wait, reviews? Wait. Are these real reviews? So huge, wait, aims huge aims and, and, and combo. And combo. <laughs> C combo. C combo. <laughs> 
these are, by the way, these are Quentin's. By the way, if I had to have just bursted out laughing, we would have made by that. But uh, we go. I was going to say. I could have got through it. But when yeah. you guys had to, like. These are your pen names, Quentin. Yeah, yeah right. Exactly. <laughs> Rosemary's Baby is the touchstone by which a film of this sort is to be judged. And Coma is found distinctively wanting. The paranoid atmosphere is there, as well as the terror and horror, but without the subtlety and the relaxed but relentless pace required to build up a credible aria of evil conspiracy. Typical of the film is its use and abuse of the sinister figure who stalks Susan in increasingly menacing ways through the early reels and corners her in an action climax in a vault full of cadavers off the anatomy lab. Ever resourceful, Susan, in one of the grossest scenes of the horror cinema, slides a rack full of hanging corpses towards the hitman. One by one, they come off their hangers and pile on top of the hapless villain in a moment that is tasteless in the extreme, <laughs> unredeemed by any kind of cinematic skill or metaphoric expression. The gunman who has pursued Susan with a vengeance, becoming increasingly sloppy and careless in his efforts to rub her out, is at this point summarily dismissed from the film, having served his shabby purpose. <laughs> and thus another thread of plot reveals itself to be only the coarse basting of a loose-woven and unfinished garment, knit in reckless fragments. That's a good review. Robert well, C. It, it's, it's a good... Uh, it's a good negative review. Yeah, I mean... Uh, a good review is not about positive or negative. It's yeah. like well-written or That's thought-provoking I, I, I think, or it's not. I think it's a well-written yeah, review. Yeah, I like that guy. I want to yeah. read more of his stuff, I actually. I do, too, actually. I like that dude. Except, <laughs> except his problem is that it's a gross scene. That no, is, that no, is no. not That is not redeemed... By uh, I didn't like I didn't do him com as much as I read of his I didn't which do which was him, not your problem yeah I didn't do him complete service because his whole thing is the whole thing is just a popcorn machine and yeah. there's nothing that that Crichton has on his mind except serving the the thriller mechanics and, and, and that's the only thing he cares well, about no 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 he cares about more he cares about butter and salt because mm -hmm. because the popcorn has yeah. butter and salt on it mm -hmm. and it makes it really good to eat. well no no well, well, the, <laughs> Well, yes, like well, no. Here's the it's a thing. Fun movie. No, if you were, you could. Crichton's making a, a like a programmer. Basically, no, no. You could read the. Uh, 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 you could read the entire piece, and then you could refute it line by line. All right. He's actually writing almost a review to you more than Gala. All right, I'm because sure. he's rubbing up against the things that uh, uh, you actually like about the movie, yeah. and he's devaluing some of the things in the margins. Yeah. All the hospital stuff in the margins. Let's look at a few more differences between the book and the movie. Before I get into it, we have to remind ourselves of one other debate we had on the episode, how Tom Selleck's character, Sean Murphy, hurt his knee. Watch the Tom Selleck scene again, because it, it, uh, my gaydar was going off. <laughs> he just seemed like Tom Selleck to me. Listen, he, I love Tom Selleck. I'm not saying like that. Uh, <laughs> and he's, you know, and he, he, hurt his, he hurt his leg playing with the, sports. With the guys. Wrestling well, with the guys. What, is he supposed to be playing female volleyball? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't go with your whole thing on that, all right? No, you pointed it out. We were watching it. What the fuck are you talking about? The <laughs> listeners will decide. Okay. <laughs> Feel free. Feel free. Is the movie all about an attack on femininity? Yes, I think so. And I believe that this nuance is something added by Crichton to back up this fact. But is that what the book is about? No. 
the book doesn't really have this theme. The plot of the book is pretty much the same. Dr. Wheeler discovering a conspiracy theory about organ harvesting, specifically the kidneys, and it ends the same way, with Dr. Bellows saving Dr. Wheeler on the operating table. But that's pretty much where the similarities end. The book opens with Nancy's abortion, but it isn't voluntary. She hasn't had an affair that's left her pregnant. She's having a terrible miscarriage and is forced to undergo the procedure. She and Dr. Wheeler aren't friends. They don't even know each other. Dr. Wheeler takes an interest in the case because she sees herself and her friends in Nancy, a young, healthy woman. Sean Murphy is actually named Sean Berman, and he hits on Susan. But it's not seen as creepy, which, by the way, it totally is. It's seen as a tender moment where he recognizes her femininity, which she feels she has lost. And there's no Dr. George confusion, as the main antagonist is named Dr. Stark. The Dr. George drama was the weakest part of the movie, admittedly, so I don't really know why they added it. So, for me, the nuance behind Selleck's performance is still up for debate. There's a lot that Crichton added to the movie that makes it uniquely different from the book. And if I had had the chance, I would have loved to have asked him about it. On our main episode, Quentin and Roger discuss how small exploitation films had to go up against big studio movies. Besides Piranha and Jaws, the duo gave another great example of exploitation versus studio, Norman Jewison's Rollerball and Paul Bartel's Death Race 2000. Sometimes they went head to head with a studio and they won. For instance, and Kevin Thomas completely agrees with me on this, they made Death Race 2000 in order to beat uh, uh, Rollerball to the theater. Yeah. All right. The only reason they made Death Race 2000 is because they knew Rollerball was coming out. And so they made it real quick, quick, cheapy version. And they got it out in the theaters before Rollerball opened. And actually, and I know you're a big fan of Rollerball. Huge fan of Rollerball and of Norman Jewison, who I think is the greatest Canadian filmmaker of I, all time. I know, I know how you feel. I think most genre fans, though, like Death Race 2000 <laughs> better, think it's the better movie, <coughs> think it is the uh, uh, the more substantial movie, and uh, actually has even more to say in a much less pretentious way. However, Rollerball is more accurate to the future that we're in. Maybe true. Maybe true. <laughs> Maybe true. Maybe true. However, I will even make a case, though, that Death Race 2000... Uh, predates the reality version of the of, of television that Completely. we see right now oh, yeah. to such a degree. Yeah, it's like Squid Game before Squid Game. Yes, or exactly. And brought you know, and then even bringing out the the weird WWM wrestling aspect of all the different characters. Yeah. Way before any nobody was doing that, by the way. Nobody was nobody. doing that before Death Race 2000. And I will I'll say one say one other thing that was very, very funny at the height of all the 9-11 stuff that was going on and you remember all that that period of time where all of a sudden america didn't like france yeah. <laughs> anymore yeah. french yeah, fries freedom, freedom fries french, french fries were called freedom fries yeah. and everything yeah, i was living in france then okay <laughs> well during that time that the, the uh, uh um american cinematheque was having a screening of, of death race 2000 which by the way death race 2000 just screens seemingly constantly for the last 30 years. And so they were screening it at the uh, American Cinematheque. And, you know, this one I was hanging out with David Carradine when he was alive. And I go, hey, you know, David, they're showing uh, Death Race 2000 at the, the Egyptian. You want to just go down there? Go, yeah, sure, let's just go. You know, so he just like popped up. They didn't know he was going to show up. They just popped up. And he goes up there and we watch the movie. And then the whole thing about the government <laughs> is they they can't admit that there are rebels or that there would be any consention uh, as far as the big brother uh, government system that they have. So they can't admit that there's rebels working against the government. That would be ridiculous. So they 
blame it on the French. <laughs> and then when the French shit happens, the whole audience just burst out laughing. And that happens like three times in the movie and they keep laughing at it. And then when David Garrett goes, yeah, that place, that kind of date is pretty good now, doesn't it? <laughs> Side note, I totally didn't realize until just now that my favorite performance in Piranha, Paul Bartel, was the director of Death Race 2000, a movie that I absolutely love. During last episode, I talked about how much I love the newspapers that Paul Bartel reads in Piranha. After the episode aired, Joe Dante himself emailed me with this cool fact about the props. And I quote, By the way, that Dogs Tear Up Baby newspaper Paul Bartel is reading was not a prop. It was an actual Texas tabloid that we found on a local newsstand, just taking advantage of what Roger would call free production value. Thanks, Joe, for letting me know. That fact somehow makes it even cooler. Next up, Quentin and Roger talk about the special care that the Japanese take with movie theater releases and shed some light about the unique theater experience for Piranha. From what I hear, they did something really cool in Japan when they released it. I think they did some sort of Atmos kind of uh, mix of an Atmos kind of uh, sound mix. Oh, really? That they had specially done for Piranha only for the Japanese uh, uh, release. Japanese releases are are like Mm -hmm. the laser discs that I have that are from Japan. Like Mm -hmm. I have an army of darkness laser disc and they take special, they always took special care in their presentations of stuff and how they were, you know, presenting things. Mm-hmm. Killing Zoe, when it was released in Japan, had programs in the theater. Oh, no, they all have programs. <laughs> yeah. I, have all, I have all my Japanese like programs. Like, they, they care. <laughs> well, they care about the, the movie experience yeah, yeah. to make it as perfect No, they're not just telling be. you a seat and telling you to get the fuck out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would have loved to have been in that theater. One of my favorite questions to ask fellow cinephiles about is their favorite viewing experiences. Have one you want to share? Make sure to shoot me a message. I think my favorite viewing experience would have to be when my dad showed me Paper Moon. It was pouring rain outside, and we sat down in front of a little TV and watched as we ate Thai food from my favorite restaurant in Santa Monica. It's moments like these I wouldn't trade for anything. Next up, Roger and Quentin gave me the scoop on the importance of the working relationship between John Cassavetes and Peter Falk. As an added bonus, they tell us which other Cassavetes films they love. And I've never really exposed you to the Cassavetes movies, have I? No, I don't think I've seen a single Cassavetes film, which I'm going to be burned at the stake here. But there's so many movies I have to watch. Not at all. Not at all. (laughs) all. Actually, this movie makes a good entry, I think, to like watch this movie and then to maybe go back or to watch the Cassavetes films, Mm -hmm. like Killing of a Chinese Bookie, at least. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not that it's necessary. I don't think I... uh, My whole case is to... To carve, separate the, carve the two, them to out, the two. all right, from the cast of I, it uh, well, I agree with that, but mm-hmm. part of part of what makes that moment of betrayal, yeah, so intense is that we we you and I, mm-hmm. Quentin and Roger, were hardwired into knowing who these two guys are in real life, mm-hmm. their real life brotherly connection, and and how deep that runs. Well, I mean, I, th- I think when we see that, yeah. when we see that dynamic happen. Well, I think there also unfold. is. A, I think there also is a thing. I mean, they've these done. Two. So much together, either acting in other people's movies, acting in Cassavetes' movies, or Cassavetes directing Falk yeah. when he's not acting with him, but he's just directing him. And there's a there's a l- neat little reference up here. I don't know if it's a reference, but it could be a reference. And I think for the Falk Cassavetes lore, Steve-O would definitely notice it as a reference. Mm-hmm. Is they make a reference to uh, uh, John Cassavetes' hands. 
And they go, you have big hands. Yeah. And John Cassavetes makes some reference about playing piano. Well, around this time is when John Cassavetes guests on Columbo, one of the best Columbos all, of all time. And he's the great piano virtuoso who's, co- <laughs> who's committed the murder. And it was like, you, you, you waited four years for Cassavetes to finally come on Columbo and play one of the killers and to have him and him and him and Columbo meet heads. So I think, so I, I, I have to think that that hand piano reference is a little bit of a reference to the Columbo for episode. Sure, for sure. I talked to a, a, a one of my friends is a, a filmmaker, Alex Rockwell. And, yeah, I know Alex. And, or I uh, knew Alex yeah, and years he, ago. And he, uh, um, you know, he's always held John Cassavetes up as like one of the directors. Him and Fellini are the two directors he always refers to and mentions all the time. And one day I actually called Alex up and I go, hey, Alex, let me just ask you a question. What's your favorite? John Cassavetes film out of all of them. What's the one that you enjoy the most? Cause you know, you're Mr. You know, you're the guy I know who's Mr. John Cassavetes. What's your favorite? And he goes, to be honest, <laughs> Mikey and Nikki. <laughs> <laughs> um, See, I would have answered woman under the influence. I actually really <laughs> like woman under the influence. I, I do too. I think that's a super movie. I like Mikey and Nikki more. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen Mikey and Nikki twice recently. I've I, I never seen Need to See Woman Under Influence I mean, again. <laughs> that family dynamic, when you realize that Peter Falk and the rest of the family, they're the ones making her crazy. Oh, yeah, no, I agree. Is just... Well, and not only... one of the, so but one, one of the other things I also love great. about Woman Under the Influence that I don't think gets halfway enough credit is everyone always talks about Jenna Rollins. I think Peter Falk is just as magnificent as she is in, in Woman Under the Influence. He's fantastic. Fantastic in that movie. And he never gets any credit. Yeah. To wrap things up for tonight, a personal story from Roger, all about Quentin's integrity when it comes to watching movies. I I wanted to tell you this. I've been thinking about this for days since we watched the movie, that um, you have a tremendous amount of integrity. Me? I just wanted to tell you that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe more than anybody I know. So there was this... uh, um, Quentin had, was having a conversation with a famous movie star and this famous movie star, the, you and they were talking about, mm-hmm. uh, one of the movies we're going to see today. And, uh, um, he said, oh, it, somehow it came up with like, oh, let's watch it together. Mm-hmm. And so that movie star was there when we watched our movie mm-hmm. together and, uh, we're sitting there and I think that person probably thought that they were coming maybe to, you know, uh, to get a role or to, because when they finally realized we're really going to watch this movie (laughs) and you were like, yeah, man, that's why you're here. Remember we're here to watch this movie. Oh, (laughs) and I thought about that and I was like, you know, I've watched this planet with like a lot of movie stars Mm -hmm. and everything, but this was a, it's a big movie star. And uh, you were like, no, you sit down. You're watching the movie. <laughs> we're here to watch a movie. Well, that's what it And we're watching it on VHS. <laughs> As somebody who knows Quentin, I second that opinion. I've met a lot of directors in my time in the industry, and I can safely say that Quentin is one of those special people in the business who really knows his stuff. When we record at Video Archives Podcast, we record for kind of a long time, sometimes up to six hours. We usually break for a meal during recording. 
I remember one night we finished up and went downstairs to eat some toy, a Thai restaurant here in LA, which is our meal of choice here at Video Archives. Roger, Quentin, Josh, Devin, and I all loaded up our plates and sat down on the couch, only to watch VHS trailers all together. It's as if the modern world didn't exist anymore. That's the kind of honest, true experience you get with Quentin. And that's our show. Thanks so much for tuning in and spending half an hour with me. Spoiler alert, next week is something a little different. Quentin and Roger are going to be joined in the store by a customer, and they'll be watching four movies over the next two weeks. Yup, you heard that right, four movies. It's a two-part theme spectacular. I think I'll give you your homework in advance. That way, you can follow along with the conversation. The first movie is directed by the American Hitchcock, and this is his psycho. The second movie is written by a master of horror and directed by a non-Eon Bond director. The third movie features a model who had cigarettes in her ears before she became famous. And the fourth movie was made after Halloween ripoffs used up all of the good holidays. My life is hanging by a thread. My body is hanging by a wire. I don't have to imagine that I'm Gala Avery signing out for today. See you next time on the Video Archives After Show. Despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it, besides the fact the issue is very near and dear to my heart. Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives? I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y dot org, to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's projectavery.org. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 